Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast, brought to you by the Rancho Cordova Film Office. I'm your guest host, Cheryl Gleason, curator and art director at the Mills Station Art and Culture Center. We call it the MAC. Today, I have the pleasure of having the busiest conductor in Northern California, Pete Nolan, conductor of Symphony d'Oro. Now, on to the show. Pete, welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. I am so glad to be here, Cheryl. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you are my second guest, and I was looking so forward to this. So, um, for all of you who don't know, we have a symphony in Rancho Cordova, which a lot of people don't even know about, Symphony de Oro. And Pete is the conductor, and we're going to learn a little bit more about Pete. Um, Going back to where he's from. So Pete, tell us a little bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Was it, you know, what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in Montana. Really? Yes, I was, and it's a great place to grow up. Whereabouts? Well, we moved around a lot. I was born in Great Falls, but before I could even take very many breaths, we lived in Butte, Mm -hmm. and then Kalispell, and then Missoula, which is where I went to elementary school. And then Billings, which is where I went to high school. Wow, that is. So I'm from Idaho. Oh, and neighbors. W- very close neighbors, Sandpoint. And it's just literally, you know, a few hours a- away. My uh, my dad was a sawyer, and he worked at the St. Regis Paper Company in Libby, Montana. So, um, yeah, so well, kindred spirits. Libby and Sandpoint are actually both places that I have a bit of a connection to through my family. My father was a United Methodist minister. And when we lived in Missoula, he was what's known as the district superintendent. So he was the kind of administrator for the western third of Montana, but also just this little chunk of Idaho that was closer, including Sandpoint. And at this point, I would occasionally have to just ride along with my dad to a given church meeting because there might not be any other alternative. All my older siblings were graduating from high school. And so I actually several times rode down to Sandpoint with dad. We'd drive down there and then have dinner and then he'd have a meeting and I'd just sit there and do homework and then we'd drive home and get home really, really late. And also Libby, because we lived in Kalispell, very close to Libby, Mm -hmm. um, we had connections there and some very good friends, um, particularly in the church in Libby, but also um, one of the engineers who built Libby Dam was a good friend of my father's. Wow, we do have some connections. Wow, that is awesome. Um, The things that you learn by doing these podcasts. Um, So you moved around a lot. When did you start becoming musically inclined and and interested in music? Was it from a really young age or did it start more of the typical middle school when you? I took piano lessons when I was really young and I had a teacher that I really liked. And then when we moved, I never found a teacher that I really liked. And so I ended up getting kicked out of piano in the fifth grade, kicked out of piano lessons for not practicing. Nothing worse than that, fortunately. That's so funny, if they knew you today. Yeah. But also in fifth grade, I started playing the French horn. Now, I wasn't particularly serious about it until eighth grade. And it's it, it's funny how – I actually just heard a call on NPR. They were saying – you know, they were getting ready to do a show tomorrow, one of those call-in shows, and they wanted you to let them know decisions that you like you never would have known were going to be so consequential in your life. And now that I think back, this would be mine. So when we moved after my seventh grade year to Billings from Missoula, I wanted to quit playing French horn because I always thought of myself as kind of a science nerd. I was going to go on and, you know, something academic. Yeah. And my mom, pretty wise woman, said, no, you can't quit. You have to try the band at your new school for one year and then take lessons next summer. And then if you still want to quit, you can quit. And um, one year later, I obviously didn't want to quit. And in fact, by the time I started ninth grade, uh, 
horn was pretty much my vocation. I was practicing for hours every day. It was where I was focused. I still did things like the speech team and stuff like that. But it was really, I knew I wanted to go on in music that quickly. So it was a quick thing, but not early by the standards of people who do what I do. It was about ninth grade when I really focused on music as my thing. Well, that's pretty advanced for Montana and Idaho. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we didn't have band in fifth grade. I have to say I benefited from really excellent music programs in Montana. It's really rather astounding still. I have nephews who've recently been in band programs and they the music programs in Montana were certainly when I was in school were rather astounding. Um my the junior high that we moved to in Billings had three concert bands including one that plays played as ninth graders we were playing college repertoire. You know, what's now a lot of colleges play those pieces or did then. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, my sister. Um, now, do you have any brothers, sisters? I have four older siblings and one younger. And any of them in musically inclined or no, interested? None of them. None of them ended up. My Well, my older brother actually does, does very high level, um, sings kind of gospel stuff. Oh, okay. Religious music is his thing. But uh, yeah, that's it. My mom was a violist, um, but not not at a professional level. She played through college, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I think my sister had tendencies, like she played the accordion when she was younger. She played drums in in, uh, middle school and high school. Her band teacher was Mr. Meehan and mine in a whole different town because she grew up in in Hope and Clark Fork and I grew up in Sandpoint. So I had the wife and she had the husband. It was really kind of funny. But we're 14 years apart. Uh huh. So that's my, that's hilarious. As far as the music in our family, my younger brother still complains to me about the fact that I would practice from seven to eight in the morning every morning. And he'd wake him up. <laughs> he still teases me about I, that. I think I might I might do the same. Yeah. I, yeah. My mom worked nights, and the one noise that was allowed to be made in the house any time of the day was for me to practice. She didn't care. I could practice, but anything else, we had to be super quiet because she was a nurse. She worked nights a lot of the time. Yeah. So. Oh, that's incredible. So you you left high school, and you said, I'm going to establish a go to college for music. Where did you go? I went to Northwestern University. I often shock the kids that I work with who are in college today and tell them that was the only university I applied to was Northwestern University. I had gone to a summer institute there after my junior year of high school um, and spent three weeks there. So it was a pretty substantial experience. And I knew that was where I wanted to go. I also knew that if I didn't get in, there was fallback possibilities. It was a different time than now. Yeah. But I knew that was where I wanted to go. It was the the foremost place to study French horn particularly and brass in general in the country. And so that was where I wanted to go. And that's where I went. So what is your um, bachelor's and your master's degree in? Both my bachelor's and master's are in horn performance. Okay. French horn performance. But I did substantial conducting study at the same time not it, they don't didn't have things like a conducting minor but i had i, I often say i had a secondary emph- emphasis in conducting both at the undergraduate and graduate level but they do today you might find it today or a double degree when i was in school they did not offer undergraduate conducting degrees of any sort anywhere. It was viewed as a graduate pursuit. You had to go and do your music training Mm -hmm. from the time you were 18 to 22, and then you could work on conducting. Um, And that has changed. You now do see more training at the undergraduate level, though it's still more more at the advanced level. Do you still uh, bring out the French horn and uh, play a few tunes? I play in in lessons when I'm teaching um, pretty okay. much is the only time now for about the last three or four years that's been the case. I have conducting five days a week in wow. my life for four different groups. So every week I have four different programs that I'm rehearsing with four different groups 
one of them, my university band meets twice. So I have five days a week, Sunday through Thursday, I'm conducting. And it just doesn't leave much time. And that's the UC Davis yes. group. Yeah, that's my band at UC Davis. Go Aggies. Go Aggies. So far, I'm two for two on, uh, you know, Aggies. Um, I also went to UC Davis and oh. was a wonderful. So when I was reading through your CV, I was like, oh, my gosh, he's got all this Aggies. I wonder if I actually heard him at any point in time when I was there. I'm trying to think 14 years ago. There was a time when I was conducting a lot of the graduations. So you might have. Yeah. yeah um, I can't remember exactly when, but it was up till about that time. And then I got busy at that time of year and wasn't available any longer. And we yeah. developed another plan. But yeah, I conducted a lot of the graduations. That's awesome. So what are the other three programs that you conduct? Well, of course, Symphony d'Oro yes. every Thursday night at the Mandarin's Music Center. And then on Sunday morning, I conduct a youth band in Los Altos. Oh. It's part of the California Youth Symphony, which is just an astounding organization with about close to 500 kids in ensembles of various sorts in the Palo Alto area. And so I drive down there and we rehearse from 9.30 to 11.30 on Sunday mornings. So that's, and it's, it's really a wonderful thing. Then Monday and Wednesday are Davis. And Tuesday night, I go to San Francisco and conduct the San Francisco Lesbian Gay Freedom Band concert band. I love them. They're fabulous. How long have they been going on? The band was founded in 1978 as the first lesbian gay ensemble in the world, openly lesbian gay ensemble, um, and is the band that you saw marching in Milk next to Harvey in the one the one pride parade that uh, he was in and they were in. Yeah. Yeah, I, when we lived in San, my wife and I lived in San Francisco. We uh, we heard them, and they're, they're they were great. It was fabulous. I love doing that. I've been doing that for 10, 11 years now. So wow. it started about the same time as Symphony de Oro, and yeah, it's a it's a fantastic volunteer community. I have to say, it's one of the most amazing volunteer communities I've I've worked with, and I've worked with a few in my roles. Um, Yes. They just, at any moment, you've got a dozen people donating half of their time, basically, to make that whole thing work. So um, when the when Symphony de Oro, they've, in the last five years, changed their name. Yes. They started out as, uh, was it River? Rancho Cordova Civic Symphon Light Orchestra. That's right. What was the pre the impetus to change the name? Well, we found that we weren't really kind of probably reflecting that name. So we thought we were going to start an orchestra that played lighter programming. And then the people who were involved really wanted to play different kinds of music. And also the inclusion, the word civic is kind of an old way of describing an, uh, an organization, right? So we decided we needed a rebranding and spent a good deal of time, like any, any organization does, to come up with Symphony d'Oro because of the connection of gold to Rancho Cordova. It was such an, a kind of a natural. And I've, I've named a few things in that saying, not me personally, but organizations yeah. I've been part of have named a few things. And they often, as you're doing it, it's like, was that going to sound funny? Does that sound, does that going to roll? And then, of course, a year in, it just rolls off your, your tongue. Like I, When I was at Sac State, I started a Saturday series for families. And families I, who played together? No, families to come and see a concert oh, together. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like you have children's concerts yeah, on yeah. weekdays at 10 a.m. Well, I thought, let's do one on Saturdays at 10 a.m. for families to bring their kids and come together. And I called it Meet the Music. And that was the main one that I can think back to. A lot of people were like, really? Meet the Music? And then, you know, it lasted five or six years. Um, but it was a great name. That's a pretty good spread. I mean, for yeah. just kind of an off-the-cuff yeah. uh, idea. So do you think – so first of all, I think 
Symphony de Oro is so much easier to say. <laughs> Do you think changing from the word orchestra to symphony has a little bit more cachet? Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's we we debated um symphony and say philharmonic or philharmonia, which are both, you know, good words for an orchestra and stuck with symphony as the clearest description of what, you know, of what we are. That's the one that most people associate with. But yeah, orchestra, I mean, if you think about it, you know, it it doesn't have as nice a ring. It's kind of old school. It it mm-hmm. sounds like your father's orchestra, you know, mm-hmm. your father's music or your grandfather's mm-hmm. or great grandfather's. It symphony sounds more um like we're going to the symphony. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just this really nice, not necessarily posh, but it is upper scale. Um I yeah. think changing the name did wonders. Well, I think it's also just it's like Coke. It's what you call an orchestra. You say we're going to the symphony. You don't say we're going to the orchestra. You say we're going to the symphony. Yeah. Right. So it's it's like I'm not I'm not having an RC cola. <laughs> I'm having a Coke. Right. Right. <laughs> and you certainly don't say Royal Crown because most people don't even know what the there R and go. the C stand for. Or Shasta cola. Um. Oh, they're all perfectly good. Absolutely. If any of you want to donate money to any of the, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, how did you get involved with the symphony? Did, you, did they just call you up? How did you find this, you know, out in the suburbs kind of? Because you, you live in Sacramento. I do live in Sacramento. Um, how did you find us? Well, it's it's really, I think, a kind of an inspiring track to Rancho Cordova. So we... Symphony de Oro, the idea of starting an orchestra actually germinated at a chamber music workshop that I run during the summers at Sac State. It's called the CalCap Chamber Music Workshop. And still probably 10 or 15 people from Symphony de Oro attend each summer. And new people come all the time. And it's a workshop where um, student and amateur musicians from all over the country come and play together. We have about 60 per week for two weeks. It's like grown-up band camp. Exactly. It really is. It's not that grown-up. <laughs> Let's just say they don't act that grown-up. We don't act that grown-up necessarily. Um, but it's a really good time. And we have these dedicated people who come back year after year after year. And a certain group of them said, you know, Sacramento really needs a, a new kind of community orchestra um, and would you be interested in helping us start it? We had no idea we were going to land in Rancho Cordova. We just were looking to start an orchestra. And I imagine it was probably Lorraine that had the idea, Lorraine Crozier, who knew kind of something about Rancho Cordova, but somehow the word got through, you know, Rancho Cordova is really being proactive about building an arts infrastructure in their young city. So... Because at the time, 10 years ago, the city would only be 10 years old. Yeah. When we started, they we, we I think, celebrated their 10th yeah. anniversary and then their 20th anniversary 10 years later. Um, so, yeah, right around the time we started. And we started in City Hall. We did an event where it was just kind of an open house. And we we did it actually in the chambers <laughs> um, and people came and we then rehearsed. And our very first concert was was back in the old back in the back room, you know, the big conference room in the back part. Right. Um, so how many people back then did the symphony have or the back then it was the orchestra. But how many yeah. did they have? How it's always, you know, it, it was probably slightly smaller, probably in the 30s to 40. But you, you don't have an orchestra if you don't have a certain corpus. So you go out and find the people. Right. right? And that's that's just how it works. So we did. Uh, I remember we did the opening of the of the Swan, the suite from Swan Lake. As one of the pieces on that program, and it was pretty outstanding, and um, and we built from there. But that's how it came to to be, and and really, it was Rancho Cordova's way of being that they had chosen that attracted us 
to partner with Rancho Cordova and led to what we are now. Yeah, it is It is pretty special when you can find a small niche that is excited, as excited as Rancho Cordova, to start programming such as this. And at the same time, they were starting a visual arts program and at the same time starting a concert band and at the same, you know, and and everything was just, and now people cannot believe all that we have to offer. It's 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 astounding. I, I sing Rancho Cordova's praises everywhere I go, both from the standpoint of the way they approached setting up their, um, the city's relationship with the arts, not through an arts council, yeah. but rather through the foundation, using the infrastructure that already existed and building on it and and bringing that together rather than trying to replace it, I think was such a – one of those decisions showed such foresight. Well, and I think uh, – and, and I get this working for Cordova Community Council myself. Um, there's – cities out there that come to us and say, we want to have a Cordova Community Council in our town. We don't we don't have that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that that is part of the, and not because I'm biased, um, but truly part of the difference maker that Rancho and the reasons why they've succeeded in this. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is truly this organic, coming of minds and 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 everybody's thoughts and and wishes and dreams all kind of pile in and everybody gets excited to get around it and be part of something that is growing and growing and so today how many people are in the symphony you know it it varies because of repertoire what you're programming needs some pieces need two of each woodwind instrument and some pieces need three so but it would be Somewhere approaching 50, you know, it might go over 50 occasionally, but somewhere around that number. And that is just right. We are just right. I mean, we can take a few more string players if we need. We have nicely filled wind sections and brass sections. You can always accommodate a couple more string players in an orchestra because they add beautifully to the substance of the string section. Um, But we're, we're... really happy with what's going on i i i am always incredibly excited by the innovative programming we're able to do here because of the civic support that means that we're able to think about bigger things rather than just trying to figure out how we'll pay for our rehearsal venue for next week right which is what many orchestras like us have to focus on. Right. Um, yes, we still need to raise some money of our own, and you know we're, we still have bills and still have those responsibilities. But it's such a different feeling because we also have a team behind us. I mean, the the council helps with things beyond writing a check. Yeah. Like, oh, you need networking. We need to find a rehearsal venue. Well, how about this place? And so it's really. E-blasting to to 17,000 people. Promoting the concerts. Absolutely. It's great that that you have the concerts, but people have to come to enjoy them because it's really word of mouth that gets people excited and inspired to go to the next one. Well, I'm so happy that we can offer almost exclusively free concerts and just provide no barriers. I mean, or as few as possible. Get there. You know, there is a... You have to get to the high school um, or wherever the concert is. But, I mean, then we go to Coriana. Yeah. You know, I mean. I mean, people thought that we were crazy to have performances in a grocery store. Who does that? The first time we did it, we did the first one. Um, I have to say, you know, I was a little worried. And then once we did it, I was sold. It is a concert that I look forward to every year. Hey, that's just another example of kind of what's really special about Rancho Cordova is just that place and the way they run that place as a civic asset. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's a business. You know, yes, we hope that they're doing well and and making money and paying their employees well. But it's really has a bigger vision than that. 
I think um, more businesses need to understand that when you invite the public in for more than doing its grocery shopping or more than doing, you know, the service that the business provides, you really do start to make it a hub, a community gathering place, a place for neighbors and community leaders to meet, a place for people to go after, you know, events and different things to have dinner in the food court area. Yeah. They've really, they've really worked that out really lovely. Well, I got to say, I mean, one of the things that I found most of is the, the effort they were willing to put in to turn that food court into a, a nice place to do a concert. I mean, they really, it, it, was not, it was not minimal thought and effort. It was maximal thought and effort to make this, oh, we're going to turn all of the booths so that people are looking at you. So we, I didn't realize when we went in there that we'd be able to seat a nice audience of a couple hundred people who just want to watch us and then catch everybody who pushes their shopping cart by on either side as well. So no, I look forward to our Coriana concerts every year. Yeah, BJ and the team over there, it's they're amazing. really special. They're they really very special. Are. I'm always telling everybody about KP Market. Me too. They're they're just they're a gem. They're a diamond in the rough. Um now most of your concerts are free, but you do do a fundraiser every year. And I was fortunate enough, I've come to a few of the a couple of the fundraisers, but this last one was very interesting. Um generally they're quite large productions and and they've got real pace and some costuming and some other things going on but this one really got down to some nitty-gritty and and some bones some meat and bones of the structure of the symphony can you talk about the last uh last week's performance yeah it was really a fun and different direction to take that annual fundraising concert. So we did it in our rehearsal room. So we invited the audience to see where we meet and to be in our space. And then we broke the orchestra down into small chamber music groups. Chamber music is generally something between two and 10 players or so. Um, Music for a room, a chamber, rather than for a concert hall. And so we were able to present each of the, the families of the orchestra we started with a brass piece, and I think the audience was able to, because the brass are usually in the back, mm-hmm. so you can neither see them as well, nor do you get to hear them for 10 straight minutes. And as a trombone, former trombone mm-hmm. player, I was very excited about that. Yeah. And so it was nice, and then we had a beautiful woodwind piece, and again, they're kind of in the back, and the audience got to be, you know, started maybe six feet from the group. So right there to see up close what goes into playing the instruments. And then we had a a wonderful string piece, a viola concerto, featuring um, Dane Sakazaki, who's just one of the real wonders. It's just such a privilege to have Dane in the orchestra. I I was sitting there. I'm sure my mouth was on the floor, and I was like, "Why has he not played at the Mac? Where? How do I get this kid uh-huh. to come and play at the Mac? Because he he is a rock star. Everything about him is just is fun, is professional, is um, hip. I mean, he was just spectacular to watch." I would say, I mean, there's there's plenty of people who could be the poster child for Symphony d'Oro, but Dane is definitely one of them. So just a little over a year ago, he just did a regular email inquiry as, you know, a player who wondered if we would have room for a violist. And what we do in our innovative format, we don't say, yes, come play an audition, solo audition for Pete which is what you would get for a lot of orchestras, which is like, come and sit in at a rehearsal and let's see if uh, if we're a match. And he came and, I mean, the way he plays, it was an instant, like, oh my goodness, okay, this is a lovely player. So then, you know, we talked a little bit and learned that he had just moved back from st- from being away in Southern California studying music and had moved back to the area and was getting ready to do a, to work on his music teaching credential. Uh, he was taking a year off. So 
beyond just then having him in the orchestra, I was able to provide him some network into the music scene in Sacramento. And we were able to really, you know, we had just a very, a, a, we, we really, Symphony de Oro really works at supporting its players. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. At not just, you know, come on in on Thursday nights. We try to go beyond that. With So with our relationship with Dane, he's our librarian now, which is great for both of us. And, you know, he's he's met a lot of people through us. Our relationship with Carlos McMillan Fuentes, we've really tried to support Carlos's um, not just growth as a composer, which is amazing, but also providing him a platform to become known as a composer because he deserves to. He's amazing. So we really try to reach in ways, in the ways that we can. Yeah. It, uh, Carlos is very special. Um, no doubt. I remember when he and, um, I can't remember the other gentleman's name, but when they went to Carnegie Hall. Brennan. Brennan. Um, and he was very special then, and I heard them play. And then, um, you know, we've we've had some of the smaller ensembles play at City Hall for um, some art receptions mm -hmm. at City Hall right. and, and, and everything, and I sometimes have them at the MAC. Well, the three of Lorraine, Crozier, Chris Allen, and um, Carlos mm -hmm. uh, McMillan Fuentes – formed the Stellis Trio. Mm -hmm. And I got really excited and we had uh we had them play at two members show receptions and then they played at well the Motherload people mm -hmm. which is the Placerville group they right. heard them and they were like can we get them to play at our reception? I said well, we can ask them. <laughs> and the three of them just love playing together. So they were like, if the date works, we're there. Yeah. And um, but this year, I, re you know, actually, it was last year. We wanted to have the Stellis Trio perform in a real concert right. setting. And then COVID hit. Yeah, so us all. we we couldn't find a replacement date for that. So it ended up a year later. Um, and, and I really wanted to do something special, so we had a candlelight uh, concert, which is the impetus of my coworker, JR, who's like, you need to do a candlelight concert. They're all the rage, and we don't have anything like that, and you could be the first one. So I did. And I have to say, that was a magical evening. It was gorgeous. I was there and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was. People were so—they walked away from that going, Wow. We got all of this two hours, this amazing ambiance for five dollars. Mm -hmm. I have to say the Mac is really um, another of the amazing things about Rancho Cordova. I got to tell you, about as excited as I ever remember seeing Shelley was when she told me about moving the building, and I got the whole story of. And it's like I, it was interesting because. People would think, so I don't know, before Rancho Cordova was a city, it was probably what we know as a census-designated area, right? And you don't think of, like, unincorporated county as having what you then think of as city fathers. But that's something I learned from hearing her tell that story, was that even then, Rancho Cordova had those kinds of guides. Yes. This area had people who were trying to take care of it. And I it had never occurred to me because you think of the city people as being the city council people and the mayors and you know the, those kind of people and if you don't have those they're still there. They're still there. And they did something amazing with saving the Mac first of all. Yeah. Thank and, you Linda Budge. And the, yeah, exactly. And then getting it moved. Um, yeah, Linda came into that conversation, too, and it was so exciting. Well, you know, my first guest for the arts and culture portion of the podcast uh, just aired yesterday is Marsha Mason. She worked for um, a group that their job was to take on 
uh, big projects like this, mm -hmm. she worked at this nonprofit that helped the city move the uh -huh. map. And I did not even know that about her. Huh. So as I talk to people, it's funny that all roads lead back to the Mac. Yeah. Because the symphony used to practice there. We did. It was our first after City Hall. We rehearsed upstairs before you'd made it such a beautiful acoustical room when it had a higher tin ceiling and was unbelievably loud. We had a real challenge because some people would come and and not come back because it was just hard because it was hard for us to perform we had to play not very loudly up there it was you know it was a challenge but it was a place and this is what i'm saying about rancho cordova is we we got that place through the council and then they helped us find better places yes. right yes easier places to rehearse i can't and even now it's getting much better use than that it's so beautiful i can't even imagine how the orchestra played there because i see the 16 17 piece uh swing band that practices there every tuesday night mm -hmm. and they blow the roof off that place so i can only imagine what 40 30 40 people yeah. would do so it was a challenge but we came through it and it got us to the next level got us to the next step so how long have you been conducting now? Well, I I conducted, you know, I studied conducting substantially even when I was in school. Um, and then pretty much right out of school, I would say that for about 20 years, I didn't really seek conducting, but opportunities came to me. So I, I had a professional brass choir that I conducted in Chicago, and then I got I was offered a, a position at a youth orchestra, but I only had that for just the one year because then I got my job here in Sacramento and moved to Sacramento. And then fairly shortly, actually the way I got conducting in Sacramento, this tells you just a little bit about the way things can go. I was playing in the faculty woodwind quintet at UC Davis, and we scheduled a performance on one of our concerts of the Stravinsky Octet. The Stravinsky Octet does not have French horn. It has the other woodwind instruments and a few others to make an octet. So therefore they said, well, Pete, would you want to conduct it? Because it's a piece that does need a conductor. It's, and so I conducted that. People saw me conduct that, which led to other opportunities like, most importantly, probably, I conducted a brass choir for the symphony, for the Sacramento Symphony, for the first Kings game in old Arco Arena. And we played pregame and at halftime, like, and then coincidentally, I also conducted the Sacramento Philharmonic for the for the opening season in New Arco Arena. Or new then the new arena in Golden One. What am I saying? For the opening season in Golden One. So it was 30 years apart, or most of, um, I did those two And you, things. you have traveled all over the world. Yeah. Um, doing various things. Mostly, mostly as a performer, the United States and Italy. Um, I did a lot of playing in Italy. That's my, that's, I played with an, a group in Italy um, called the International Orchestra of Italy for about mm, four or five years. Do you speak Italian? Uh, si, io parlo un po', un po' di italiano, si. Auch ein bisschen Deutsch. Oh, and Dutch, or uh, German. German. There's just those, but my German and Italian are are very rusty. Very rusty, um, but no, I've spoken both German and Italian pretty well at some point in my life. <laughs> we'll put it that way. <laughs> what do you see for, what's what's next for, for Pete? Well, I'm actually, next week um, is a pretty exciting week. We drive out of here on Wednesday to go to Washington State to greet our first grandchild. Oh, that's very exciting. It is very exciting. Do the 18th, so we hope we'll get there before the arrival, but if not, shortly thereafter. Um, and that's the best part anyway, is the after. Yeah, we want to be there. So we'll be there for a few days and then trying to go back 
a lot, of course. So that's one of the big things. Um, How many kids do you have? We just just the one, just one, just one son, William. Nice. Um, he's David's son, my husband David, and was three when David and I met, and so we've just been a family. How long have you been married? We've been well. We've been together. 31 years and married since 2009 like so many of our <laughs> our tribe <laughs> indeed we, we count the full 35 for us yeah, yeah. We, we actually had our wedding um on the officially on the same date as what we considered our anniversary before then so we wouldn't have two so we have yeah. three it's really something when you have to marry the same person three times and then finally it's legal. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> – yep. But we uh, – yeah, so uh, so that's, that's, that's the big new focus. As far as other things, I really love the way my life and schedule are right now. I love the four groups that I work with each week. And lots of variety. I look, would yeah, it is. It's something different every day and four different programs. And it's it's certainly enough, but it feels kind of like the right amount. Um, but I'm at the point where probably I'll actually pare back a little bit um, just to create more flexibility to to go north and visit Enjoy. a grandchild mm -hmm. and and son and daughter-in-law. That's awesome. So. Um, so God, it's been so great spending time to get to know you because I've been watching you up on stage. Mm -hmm. And as a little kid, I would always, in, even in my bedroom, I would play the conductor. And I found myself, and it was so funny because during the Stellis Trio concert, there was this uh, couple of people and I was standing near the hallway door and I do that and I don't even realize I'm doing it. And they were watching me and I realized they were watching me and then I realized what I was doing and I'm like, oh, okay. I can't. It's kind of like this nervous like thing that I do. We'll just have to have you be one of our celebrity guest conductors I, and really get to do it sometime. That would be a bucket list for okay, sure. Well, it's on the list. We will figure it out that, that is over on the next year list. or so. It's going to get... It's going to get done. Your your debut will happen. Um, so a couple lightning round questions for you before okay. we let you go. What is your favorite piece to play on the French horn? Almost without a doubt, the Brahms Trio for horn, violin, and piano. It, I've played it at kind of all stages of my career. It's as far as French horn, other than the great symphonies that we play in and the great operas, the big pieces, it's probably the one piece that would be maybe in the top 10 greatest pieces ever. I mean, it really is. And, and not just by, by the opinion of French hornists. It was a very special piece to Brahms. He wrote it after his mother passed. Um, so it really shows all those signs. And it just it kind of was a piece. It's that's that's the piece. Brahms Trio for horn, violin, and piano. Nice. Who's your favorite composer? Probably, if I had to take one to the desert island, might be Richard Strauss, Richard Strauss. I can't imagine a world without De Rosen Cavalier, without the opera De Rosen Cavalier. Rosen Cavalier Suite. So Rosen Cavalier is a four-hour-long comic opera of late German hyper-romanticism with a, a wacky plot um, and amazing music. But there is an orchestral suite that's about 20 minutes long, and that is the piece that I really fell in love to music to. Um, I wore out an LP of that in high school, wow. listening to the, the Rosen Cavalier suite. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so this is a question I ask all of my guests. How important 
is art and culture in our society today? Certainly as important as ever and maybe more important as than more important than ever in that as we move more and more into our digital bunkers I think anything that connects us and brings us together gains importance. I might be in the minority of my colleagues, but I would include sports in that. Mm -hmm. I would include literally anything that gets us sitting next to human beings and connecting in some way. I often say, I really do often say this to my colleagues, in my ideal world, every single person would be making art. Now, for snooty people like I work with a lot, I go one step further and I said, that would mean that every weekend there would have to be tons of art shows of what you might consider crap. Tons of plays that you would consider to be garbage and tons of musical performances that you might give no credibility. But those would be the most important socially of any performances going on that weekend. Everybody should be making art. I think you're right. I, I think I know that it's more important than ever. I think you're right in that it's a place where we can put our digital access down. But it's also a way where it's so hard to be heard because of everything that is going on politically in the 24-hour news cycle and, and, and you know, Twitter and X, and you've got all these social media apps. And so we're just bombarded with stuff that really doesn't make us think. It's like the, <laughs> the death scrolling. You just, uh, yeah, that's, oh, that's kind of cool. Okay. Or we get lost in these silly animal videos because that makes me laugh a little bit. But what's better than going to a play that makes you laugh? Hearing a symphony that makes you smile. Seeing an art piece and a painting that, that makes you think, like, what is the artist thinking there? This is what I see. So I, I do believe we need it more than ever, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally convinced. And I so admire all you're doing at the Mac. I just, oh, thank you. I, when I, I just, such admirable work and great work. I love that it's a place where we can have all of the arts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's truly a place. an arts center. Yeah, we it, you know it's not just one. We have Authors Day. We have music. We have poetry. We have visual arts. We have we're just you know I had Rise Up Theater for a while. Now they're getting their own building, but we'll you know we'll still figure out some yeah. things. We'll have some dramatic arts. Yeah, yeah. Did but, you know that opera came into being with the idea of being the art form that incorporated all of the art forms. That was the idea of it. Um, the, a group of intellectuals, including Galileo's father um, in Florence, decided that this would be the art form that incorporated music and visual arts and theater and literature and blah, blah, you know, that was the idea. I did not, but that makes so much sense. Opera della art works of art. art. That's her opera. I love it. And I love the opera. I love opera. Yeah. Oh. Well, Pete, thank you so much for being a guest on Such our a pleasure, Cheryl. podcast. It's just really been great to get to know you a little bit better. And, um, and hopefully, if you have not checked out Symphony de Oro, you can go to symphonydeoro.org and check out where they're going to be playing next. Um, they have what? What is your next opportunity for people to come see? We have coming up in April, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Oh, that's huge! Paired with, I'm so excited. We're playing the Overture and Suite from Samuel Coleridge's 
Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Hiawatha. So Samuel Coleridge Taylor was an Afro-British composer um, right around the turn of the, the 20th century. And he became fascinated with Longfellow's stories of Hiawatha and wrote three long cantatas and a set of ballet music and a beautiful overture all based on Hiawatha. It is fantastic, beautiful, romantic music and just the perfect thing to pair with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in April. Well, that sounds perfect. So there you have it. We'll see you in April. And where's that playing? That's at Cordova High School Performing Arts Center. All right, the pack. You heard it here first on the Rancho Cordova podcast. For now, we will sign off and stay tuned for next month. We'll have another surprise for you in the arts and culture land. I hope you like this intimate episode with conductor Pete Nolan. Stay tuned for the next episode where host Charles Lego interviews Rachel Zillner and Anne Descalzo from Clutch. Please reach out to us if you have any questions or comments at www.ranchocordovapodcast.org. I'm your guest host, Cheryl Gleason. <laughs>